your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And what a great day on Capitol Hill. Uh, they are at it again. The Republicans are trying to choose the Speaker of the House. How did the Republicans get to choose? Because we, on the Republican Party side, actually won the last election when it came to electing more members of the House of Representatives. Didn't gain a lot of seats. It's only a four-vote margin. But still, it's control of the House of Representatives. But one thing that Republicans have to do is they have to agree on who they're going to choose as speaker. And it's not going to be Jim Jordan. I mean, honest to goodness, he didn't even come close on the first vote. And uh, they're planning on future votes. And so what is going to happen and what is the right answer to this? I mean, the world is burning the president of the United States is concerned enough about the situation in Israel that he's flying to Israel. He's planning to meet with uh, all of the Israeli leadership. And then he will also be meeting with some of the Palestinian leadership, except maybe not because Mahmoud Abbas, who's 87 years old, Abu Mazen, as he is known familiarly in Palestinian circles, uh, may not leave Ramallah. He may not go into Amman, Jordan, where the president was planning to be with him. He will be meeting with King Abdullah of Jordan and so forth. So is this a political stunt or is it substantive? And speaking of political stunts, what about those gag rules, huh? We'll be speaking with Andy McCarthy about that. He has the perspective of the legal world. Is this really an outrage that is unprecedented or, as Judge Tutkin said, she is uh, the judge concerning basically the election cheating trial against President uh, Trump and the attempts of January 6th to overturn the election. Uh, she had said that any other trial, any other defendant would not be allowed to say the things and the attacks on witnesses and the attacks on the jury system and attacks on judges that President Trump is issuing every day. And there are more today, which we will get to as well. There are three big questions on the table about the Middle East. Uh, when will Israel launch its widely anticipated attack on Hamas? Uh, who will be the next Speaker of the House? Uh, that's been somewhat bloody the struggles on the house but not to be compared with the horrors uh, perpetrated by Hamas and uh, will the gag order do anything to alter President uh, Trump's agenda or patterns of behaviors uh, there were four votes that would have been enough to stop Jordan from winning the speakership he got zero Democratic votes he actually had 20 votes against him. Uh, he only got 200 votes, which means he was 17 votes short of, of winning the speakership. Uh, will he try again? Should he try again? Uh, we will be talking about the what's been called a goat rodeo, which is a, a term that I love. It's a new term for me. But the goat rodeo, will uh, uh, we'll be talking about that with uh, uh David Drucker uh, of the Dispatch and uh, about uh, the further push to 
to see if uh, he can actually replace Kevin McCarthy. In nominating, in nominating Jim Jordan, he was compared to a biblical heroine. Uh, which one? Uh, we will give you that answer and let you hear what uh, conference chair for the Republicans, Elise Stefanik, had to say. She, by the way, her name has come up as another potential speaker, but I think it's also problematic. The, the, the real problem and challenge they have on finding a speaker is finding one that is basically just in the middle of the party, not on one side or another, not pro-DeSantis, not pro-Trump, not pro-Nikki Haley particularly, someone who isn't associated with one of the uh, presidential contenders, speaking of which, in terms of fundraising and reports on the financial well-being of the various contenders, President Trump has more money in the bank, and this is not a question of what he has with his various investments, it's a question of what he's raised. He's raised more money than all of his competitors combined, uh, which is kind of what you expect of an incumbent and what's interesting is even though he is the ex-president not an incumbent he's running something like an incumbent there's news on the crime front that is very very different and very shocking to many people the headline of a brand new uh a press a poll from associated press and the national opinion research center it's a collation of every kind of statistic they can find shows a sharp and dramatic decrease in violent crime. But property crimes, particularly car theft, that's gone up. Now, you could say, okay, uh, better to have car thefts than rapes and murders and assaults and people cutting each other up. But uh, this is another interesting and strange, uh, very unusual development. And... Uh, Everybody knows that the most influential figure in America uh, isn't President Trump. It certainly isn't President Biden. It's Taylor Swift. Uh, her bodyguard has just left his dream job uh, serving. There are probably a lot of people who would volunteer to guard Taylor Swift's body if, if it came down to that. But her bodyguard is leaving his dream job to take up another position far away. That involves fighting. Uh, we will get to that as well on the Michael Medved show. Uh, when Jim Jordan was coming to the Florida House of Representatives for the vote that was conducted earlier today, the vote that he lost, uh, he was approached by CNN's Manu Raju, who asked him about how long, how much longer, by the way, but with people getting biblical, that's another biblical phrase. How long, oh Lord, how long? Uh, how much longer? Okay? So uh, Jim Jordan had this response. Listen, clip 17. How many ballots are you willing to go? Will you do as much as Kevin McCarthy? We need to get a speaker today, and we feel really good about uh, where we're at. I mean, I'm sorry, I got, I'm going that, over to meet with Does this mean ballot after ballot, by the way, McCarthy did? Whatever, whatever it takes to get a speaker today is what we're second ballot, right? What are some of the concerns that you've still heard from members at this time? We've been picking up uh, support every day, and so it's been... Uh, have you Again, I feel, I feel confident. Have you spoken to President Trump? Are you asking him to help you with this vote? I haven't talked to President Trump. I've talked to the President in a couple of days. I haven't talked to President Trump in a couple of days. 
again, uh, the members of Congress, the ones who are voting no on Jim Jordan are the ones who have to do not have easy races on their seats. In other words, there are 18 members of that Congress. So it's uh, uh, virtually 10 percent, almost 10 percent of all of the Republicans in the House of Representatives are people who won uh, in districts that were carried by Joe Biden. In other words, they were far more popular in their districts than President Trump was. So I'm not sure his influence on those people who are the bulk of the people, the 20, who didn't vote for Jim Jordan. I'm not sure they're going to go along with Trump in this regard. Uh, Dr. Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations uh, is going to be joining us later. He has a very provocative piece, sure to be controversial, called What Friends Owe Friends, Why Washington Should Restrain Israeli Military Action in Gaza. Speaking of which, there's a great deal of uh, tension in the news about uh, apparently it's, they claim 300 casualties at a hospital that was hit by an Israeli missile strike, except that may not be the real story. Why not? We'll get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. This is going to be a little bit provocative. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, there is a great deal of uh, footage that is uh, being featured on cable news everywhere, and a great deal of indignation and pain and horror about some 300 uh, at least wounded people. They may not all be dead, but it could be as many as 300 killed by uh, a rocket that fell on a Gaza hospital. And the reason that I use that language so carefully about a rocket that fell, because it, it is the Israeli side, and it's rare that you get a, uh, a an announcement so consistent and so strong from the Israeli military saying, we didn't do it. It wasn't our rocket. So who's responsible for killing those people? Well, in any event, it's the people who started this war, the Hamas people. But one of the things that uh, people who have written about the war and who have followed the war so far, there were somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 rockets that were aimed by Hamas at targets in Israel. Uh, some of them killed a lot of people. But at least 30 percent and probably over one third of those rockets that were launched actually fell on Gaza and killed other people in Gaza because though they have very expensive, uh, very sophisticated Iranian rockets, the um, 
the Hamas, which uh, had undertaken a great deal with hang gliders and a naval attack and with people blowing up fences and using, uh, they used drones to knock out cameras and early warning systems from the Israelis so that they could get in and kidnap people and kill people and murder people, that with all of that going on, apparently their precision rocketry wasn't so great. It didn't hit where it was aiming to go. And particularly at, at this point, uh, the Israelis who are holding back on the ground invasion, and uh, th is that ground invasion still going forward? Well, there are all kinds of things that are happening right now, and not all of them terrible, uh, which is kind of a change for this particular war. One of the things that isn't terrible is discussion about uh, making deals on the hostages. Uh, there has been a an apparently authoritative uh, spokesperson for Hamas, and we don't know how uh, authoritative or accurate this is, that they would be willing to release all of the hostages who aren't Israeli. <laughs> and, and of course... For people who understand that the entire underpinning of this war is anti-Semitism, it's hatred for Jews. Uh, the Nazis, uh, yes, they killed some uh, Roma people, some gypsies. Yes, they killed some political prisoners, lots of political prisoners. But basically their target was if you were a civilian uh, living in the mainstream of German life, you didn't have to worry too much about the Nazis unless you crossed one of their well-announced uh, doctrinal ideas. But they were after Jews. Jews treated differently, in other words, from other people in the world. This is one of those things why people believe that anti-Zionism is at its very heart based on anti-Semitism. Why? Because... What does anti-Semitism mean? It means that Jewish people have fewer rights, have fewer privileges, have fewer right to life, life to be let alone, to worship as you please. That Jews are denied the same kind of privileges that everybody else gets. And the same idea is there is no other country in the world where people regularly challenge your right to exist. And uh, yet the uh, question about what is Israel's right to exist, just follow some of the demonstrations on American college campuses. Uh, this is not opposed to one Israeli government. The people on the left, the hateful people on the left who are attacking the Jewish state at this time of uh, difficulty, uh, those are people who deny that Israel has a right to existence in any form. Uh, this announcement from the IDF, uh, literally just breaking right now, they are announcing that we just eliminated Ayman Nofal, a senior Hamas operative. Nofal was the commander of Hamas's central brigade in Gaza and the former head of military intelligence for Hamas. Nofal directed many attacks against Israeli civilians and besides being one of the most dominant figures in the terror organization, he was involved in the planning of the abduction of Gilad Shalit. 
We won't stop until we eliminate Hamas, so says the IDF. Who was Gilad Shalit? Gilad Shalit was a, um, an Israeli, I believe he was a corporal. He was either a corporal or a private. He, he had somebody who had just been drafted into the Israeli army, and he was captured by the Hamas uh, in a previous back and forth with Israel, and eventually they negotiated a, a swap to get back Yilad Shalit. His family was very active in trying to get him back, and it was heartbreaking. He was held for five years. He was held prisoner, and of course, he was terribly mistreated. And they released over a thousand Palestinian uh, prisoners who had committed horrible terrorist crimes in Israel over the years. They were released to trade for the one uh, individual, Gilad Shalit. The uh, uh, it's it's a, an amazing story. Israel was told that they would. Uh, uh, it was offered that they would get Shalit back if they released a thousand Palestinian prisoners in exchange for him in two phases. This was the same agreement reached five years later. Um, the uh, the ongoing difficulties with the uh, Hamas and Israel war is the trip by President Biden going to help? Well, the, the point is it can't hurt. It can only hurt if there is some kind of horrible breach of security. And even for people who don't wish well to Joe Biden generally and you'd like him to retire. And I think there are a lot of us who would prefer that President Biden finish up his term, retire with dignity. He's not. And one of the things that he is showing with this trip is he's showing that uh, he's not a uh, br broken down old man with no energy left. Uh, President Biden will travel to Israel tomorrow to show solidarity with America's closest ally in the Middle East, says the New York Times, in a wartime trip to bolster the country's resolve to eradicate Hamas. Uh, we'll bring you the latest on that development and more coming up on The Michael Medved Show. Show. While we'll keep you up to date on any developments regarding the negotiations or possible negotiations about the release of at least the non-Israeli, non-Jewish hostages, which would be maybe the beginning of something very, very important. Because, I mean, when you think about the situation they're in, it's a, a horrible, horrible situation. Uh, meanwhile, here <laughs> in our own, own ongoing political fights, aside from the difficulty of uh, Republicans to uh, center their will on uh, establishing a new speaker of the House of Representatives, we have the question of the several gag orders that are attached to President Trump. The Judge Chutkin in the... Uh, a January 6th case involving President Trump and the efforts to overturn the election says Mr. Trump can certainly claim he is being unfairly prosecuted, a Judge Kutchkin said during the hearing, that's yesterday,
but I cannot imagine any other criminal case in which a defendant is permitted to call the prosecutor deranged or a thug, and I will not permit it here simply because the defendant is running a political campaign. Uh, Andy McCarthy, who is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, a veteran prosecutor and a very distinguished one, a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Andy, uh, you believe that uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin may have gone too far in trying to interfere with uh, something she at least acknowledges verbally, which is Trump's First Amendment rights to express his opinions. Uh, What's wrong with the gag order that she's putting forward? I think, Michael, the main thing that's wrong is that what Trump has been saying, although it's repulsive, is constitutionally protected. And uh, Judge Chutkin, in her analysis, which is we don't really get a good look at because most of this was an oral ruling that was uh, announced from the bench. But um, I think she's under the misimpression, to be kind, that the only interest at stake here is the administration of justice, that is the the judicial process, and that it doesn't have to cede any ground or make any accommodations for the Constitution's protection of of, uh, political speech during a campaign under circumstances where, uh, you know, Trump uh, has a right to run and he's a leading candidate. And every other candidate in the race, Republican and Democrat, is uninhibited in what they can say about the the prosecution against him. So I really think as long as he stays on the right side of the incitement line, uh, particularly when we're five months from trial and there's no jury uh, sworn at this point, uh, I, I really don't see how she can rightly do what she did. Do you still think it's appropriate? One of the concerns that she tried to focus on in her statement, as I understand it, was uh, concern about witnesses. Is, In other words, is it appropriate, uh, usually in a high-profile trial, their efforts to shield the witnesses from outside influences? Uh, couldn't uh, Trump talking about the case and particularly talking about trying to undermine the credibility of some witnesses against him, uh, wouldn't that come into uh, the territory of trying to influence the decision uh, by attacking the witnesses directly? Well, I think it depends on who the witnesses are. For example, you know, the the witness that Trump has attacked more than any other is Mike Pence, who is also a candidate in the presidential election, and who has been making public statements about, uh, you know, arguing that Trump tried to get him to violate the Constitution? Uh, and uh, by the way, I'm not, I'm not getting into like whether this is true or not true, which is not really the First Amendment analysis. It's, it, it's simply, you know, you can't have a situation where Pence is free to comment because he's not a party to the litigation, uh, and the judge is not really in a position to tell him what he can and can't say. And at the same time, Trump is then muzzled and can't, can't speak or react. So, you know, generally speaking, I, you, you have to, with witnesses, avoid saying things that could be uh, interpreted as witness intimidation or manipulation. 
Um, but the idea that you can't comment on witnesses when it's when the prosecution is an issue in the campaign uh, and under circumstances where what he's saying is not uh, on its face obstruction of justice, libel or incitement, I, I, I really just I, I don't think the judge is paying enough deference to the Constitution's robust protection for political speech in a campaign. Uh, okay, uh, two questions uh, that, that this very complicated issue. Uh, one is uh, no one has come up forward with what it is that Judge Tanya Chutkin is going to do to enforce this gag order. In other words, uh, Trump uh, has already, since she uh, imposed the order, he already seems to have violated it. Uh, he's going after her and uh, going going after other officials of the court, certainly going after the prosecutor who's working against him, uh, Jack Smith. But what can she do? And then second, if she does do something, uh, and, and for instance, uh, cites him for contempt of court uh, or threatens him with imprisonment of some kind for on some basis, uh, wouldn't that be just a prime basis for appealing uh, the judgment if they ever reach one on this issue? Well, I think, Michael, the, the appeal is going to happen anyway, because this is a kind of a thing that a court of appeals can decide without having to get into the underlying issues in the case. Um, Trump has some other issues that he's raising uh, that may be appealable, but I think this one is whether she takes action or not. But your point uh, is is really a good one, and it's why I think that judges should never uh, issue directives or draw lines in the sand uh, unless they're really willing to defend those lines. Her way of enforcing the order, as as you point out, uh, would be to order him uh, to hold him in contempt and either order him arrested or start issuing fines that would accumulate day by day. Uh, and that gets enforced by having the Justice Department enforce it, uh, either by the U.S. Marshals or some other law enforcement agency. As Trump would say, uh, the I thugs of the Justice Department. <laughs> right. In their SWAT suits. That's right. But um, I, I, you know, whether the just I, I don't see the, the Justice Department refusing to enforce uh, Judge Chutkin's directive, and I would think that uh, you know, the, if it happened on, if if she held someone in contempt in court, in the courtroom, uh, in fr where it happened in front of her, uh, she would order the court personnel to lock the person up for some period of time. Uh, otherwise, she could refer it to the Justice Department for criminal contempt, uh, or just issue a warrant for him that she would expect the law enforcement people to to enforce, just like you enforce other kinds of contempt. Don't you think there's at least part of President Trump that would just be so pleased and so delighted if she actually did try to imprison him? Yeah, she's, he's clearly trying to goad her. I think, Michael, he's, he's taking the same approach as, as he's taking in the case right now, the civil case in New York which is he doesn't think he's got much of a chance in this forum, so he's decided to fight it as a political matter rather than a legal one. And we will see where it goes. Andrew McCarthy on a busy, busy day. I appreciate your making the time for us. Coming up, 
Uh, we'll be joined by Dr. Richard Haas, who is President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. He has a piece saying that President Biden, when he goes to Israel, should get Israel to agree to restraints on its military action. You have the greatest show on the planet. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, I'm glad to welcome back to the show Dr. Richard Haas, who is the President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, he's someone who has served in three different Republican administrations in the foreign policy field. He is the author of the best-selling recent book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. And right now, he's not writing about good citizens. He's writing about good friends. And the idea that uh, good friends owe their other good friends uh, good advice. And in that context, he is trying to offer some advice to the United States and to Israel, uh, hoping that the United States will succeed with President Biden's trip tomorrow scheduled for uh, Jerusalem and uh, Ramallah. Uh, to uh, or Jordan actually is going to be meeting the Palestinian leadership in Jordan. At least it was originally scheduled that way. But with that trip, Dr. Haas, you're suggesting that President Biden uh, should persuade the Israeli leadership to rein in, uh, at least restrain to some extent, the massive ground invasion that everyone has been talking about. Why is that so important? Well, it's important for any number of reasons. One is I don't think it will succeed if the definition of success is to eliminate Hamas. Military tools just can't accomplish that kind of a political objective. And as we've seen with this tragic apparent bombing of a hospital, uh, a large effort will uh, generate lots of support or sympathy for Hamas in the region and around the world as well as in, in Gaza. I think Israel does have to go after Hamas, but it has to distinguish between Hamas and Gaza. Uh, and there are things that can and should be done against Hamas, and Israel's been doing it with various uh, targeted strikes. It could do certain things with commandos. But I worry that something big will not only lose Israel the high ground around the world, but I think it dramatically increases the chance of war widening, bringing Hezbollah into the war from Lebanon, possibly Iran. And I don't think that serves the interests of Israel or the United States. President Biden shows up in Israel if the trip goes ahead as uh, scheduled with tremendous uh, leverage and influence. He's the most popular man in Israel now, far more popular than the Israeli prime minister. So President Biden can can essentially speak truth. And again, his speech the other night was very well received in Israel. And now the time is, in, I think, in private to have a very direct, uh, straight conversation with, with, with Israeli leaders. Okay, if the goal is not the elimination of Hamas and the complete dismantlement of the Hamas uh, political leadership, quasi-governmental structures in Gaza. If that's not the goal, what would be the goal of the next uh, Israeli maneuver? Don't get me wrong. I'd love to see Hamas eliminated. Uh, it just can't be done. It's, uh, it's as much a, a movement or a network, uh, it's an ideology as much as, much as it is a, 
an organization. And even if Hamas were eliminated, something like it would come into being. So I think the goal ought to be to degrade it as much as possible militarily. And that's the main the most that can be done, I think, within Gaza. And I think Israel needs to rebuild its defenses in the south and west. What happened 10 days ago never should have happened. And it should never happen again. And ultimately, I think Israel needs to have a political outreach to Palestinians, not to Hamas. But the other Palestinians, the goal has to be to marginalize Hamas to show there's a better path for Palestinians than supporting this terrorist organization. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I know from my conversations with Israelis who are also uncertain about the next step, one of the great concerns is that the sympathy for Hamas that seems to be permeating the Arab world with huge crowds in places like Iraq uh, that have no skin in this game in particular, with all of that sympathy for Hamas, it gives Hamas a chance to move its center of operations, God forbid, from Gaza to the West Bank. And the West Bank, where more Palestinians live than Gaza, about 3 million as opposed to 2 million, uh, the, the results of Hamas unseating the Palestinian Authority with all its faults uh, would be nightmarish, no? Uh, it would. And the way, the way that Hamas unseated the Palestinian Authority in Gaza was it seemed to be less corrupt and more focused uh, more committed, younger. Uh, we don't. You're right. We don't want to see a replay of that in the West Bank. But the best way to avoid a replay is to show again the Palestinians who rule out the use of force, who are willing to coexist with Israel. They will. They actually have a political path. They won't get all that they want, but they would get more than they have, and they would get a hell of a lot more than than Hamas is going to get, which is nothing. And in terms of Hamas getting nothing, uh, they appear now to be entertaining the idea of at least some kind of negotiations for uh, hostages, at least for the non-Jewish hostages. Uh, what, yeah, it's it's going to be very hard, very hard to deal with that because the question is distinguishing among hostages. What is it they're going to want in return? Uh, so it's hard to know what's propaganda, what's real. But look, I think it's the point that's a decent chance there will be some swap, some exchange of, of hostages for Hamas uh, prisoners in Israeli uh, jails. I think something like that is, is possible, could be something larger. But uh, I wouldn't rule that out uh, as this plays out. Uh, what, uh, what do you think is the uh, uh, next step? Do you think the president's making a mistake? to take the risks, both diplomatic and political, and even security risks, to make this very fast trip to Israel? No, I don't think it's, he's making a mistake. I think it's a courageous thing to do, and by every measure of the word courageous. But again, to simply let things drift, uh, I, I hurts, I think, not just a close ally of the United States, Israel, but I think it's bad for U.S. interests in the region and the world. We don't want the Middle East to be blowing up now. We've got our hands full in Europe and, and the Indo-Pacific. So, sure, the president, I think, needs to use his voice, persuade the Israelis to scale back what they appear to be contemplating, see whether we could add some momentum or something to some kind of a hostage uh, 
release to try to prevent war widening, to signal certain countries of, of that, particularly Iran, so they understand the cost of war widening. No, I think it's a, it's, it's a good investment. I'm not saying it's without risk. I'm not saying it's going to work. But simply leaving this alone, I don't see how that would improve things. And there, there are a number of scholars um, who believe that the so-called two-state solution, the idea of creating a separate nation of Palestine in the Middle East is is just dead because of the uh, if if this kind of horrific attack can happen in Israel from Gaza where they aren't established as any kind of state uh, there would be great fears of uh, even worse attacks coming from a new state of Palestine do you believe the uh, yeah. there's still life in the two-state solution idea I think that analysis is dead wrong, but I look, I think the two-state solution is on life support, uh, not so much because of what just recently happened, but in part because of years of uh, Palestinian refusal to accept compromises and then Israeli settlement activity. So it's going to be difficult, but to paraphrase what Churchill said about democracy, the, uh, the two-state solution is the worst solution except for all the others. And if Israel is going to remain a, a democratic Jewish state, I do not believe there is an alternative to a two-state solution. The Palestinians, five million Palestinians, continue to live in Israel without rights, then Israel ceases to be a democracy. And if they do get full political rights, Israel ceases to be a Jewish state. I do not see how either of those outcomes is in Israel's interest. And uh, uh, the discussion about a uh, one-state solution, um, like Canada mixing French speaking and English speaking people, not that they've been in the habit of killing each other. Um, but uh, there, there is, as, as you know, it uh, would take an amazing sales job to persuade the Israeli public at this point, at least according to some of the polling. The polling on, in the United States has been very positive about Israel. Do you think it's important? To, well, obviously it is important to hold that level of support. Uh, Richard Haas, always a pleasure to speak to you. Your piece is uh, uh, linked at our website at michaelmedved.com. He is the President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of the fine book about civics, which is not a boring subject at all. It's a necessary subject. The book is called The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens which is important for this greatest nation on God's green earth.